This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz Kryptosin. On this episode of the podcast, we have Ragnar from Guns and Bitcoin. We talk about guns, mental illness, Bitcoin, Ragnar's experience with the Lightning Network, and much more. This is the second episode of the Being Skeptical of Lightning series. There will definitely be episodes of this in the future, but we will be moving on to something else next week. This is a great episode, and I think you're going to like it a lot. I just wanted to give you a quick reminder that if you wanted to support the show, you can do so with my crowdfunding campaign, crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. You can also find links to tip me in the show notes as well. Don't forget to tell your friends that Lightning Junkies this podcast to get your Lightning Network fix. Let's go ahead and jump into this episode. Ragnar to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So, you know, I definitely wanted to get you on the podcast. You know, I was seeing your, you know, various tweets where you uh, talked about Lightning and you had these issues, you know, with your uh, business, uh, Guns and Bitcoin. But before we launch into all of that, I just wanted to get more of your uh, general pre-Bitcoin background, if possible. Thanks. So I discovered Bitcoin in 2011 from the Reddit anarcho-capitalism subreddit and started from there and been loving it ever since. Uh, I kind of come from a real estate development and construction background. So one of the things that compelled me to use Bitcoin was in my uh, small construction firm, I was using PayPal to accept and payments and to pay people. And one day they just closed my account, wouldn't tell me why, told me I had to get a court order to find out why. And so that kind of made Bitcoin real for me. I did start accepting Bitcoin, but, you know, especially back in 2013, no one was uh, paying in Bitcoin. Still to this day, I guess they really don't. But that, that's what really uh, made Bitcoin real for me and was working in real estate for a while. And then last year, I stepped away from real estate full time to start Guns and Bitcoin, which is what I've been doing for just about 12 months to the day. Awesome. We'll uh, definitely get into Guns and Bitcoin here in a moment. But I guess I wanted to dig deeper into the uh, the initial uh, jump into Bitcoin, if you don't mind. What about Bitcoin specifically grabbed you here? You know, you kind of mentioned the the ANCAP uh, subreddit, I believe. Could you kind of dig a little bit deeper into the, the philosophy behind Bitcoin and why you jumped into that specifically? I came into Bitcoin not from like an economic philosophy standpoint, like I think a lot of people do. I came into it in the more political philosophy in terms of censorship resistance, sort of agorism, that angle of not wanting anyone to interfere with what I do. And I've never been much of a, much of an economist. So, you know, sound money, I understand the basics, but for me, it was always been a really practical tool based on, you know, my experience with PayPal, based on my experience with law enforcement. Um, to me, it's, it's a really practical thing. And then on, on the philosophy side, not having a state or being against the state is my philosophy, which intersected with my reality, where I actually saw those principles come into play. So it's, it's like a basis of anarcho-capitalism where I started and uh, just been strengthened through my reality and experience over the, the, you know, the years since then. Got it. Any reason why altcoins or shitcoins don't interest you at this point? I feel like I got lucky and I've, I've had a couple people ask me why I never got into altcoins. I've never bought any. Someone once gave me Ether and then I lost it because I, I sent it to the wrong address. But I think I was lucky because I started in Bitcoin before Ethereum was founded and, and a lot of other things. So because I was so focused and grounded in Bitcoin first, when these other ones came along, I didn't understand it or really see the value. I mean, I was pretty open to things like tokenizing some assets and I, I still think there's a future there, but anything else, I just don't see the use case. So I think for people who, who came in later when Ethereum was a big thing, then I understand why it might be confusing to also hear about Bitcoin and everything else. So I'd like to think I'm smart, but I also think it's just sort of luck 
of, of when I got started. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Would you say that coins that are quote unquote more popular like Litecoin or Monero or Zcash, is there any future for them there or is it just not in your wheelhouse? I think for the privacy coins, they're going to be mostly useful as you know a test net for Bitcoin and maybe some features. And also it's, it's a nice backup, I guess, to Bitcoin if for some reason... There's some major bug in Bitcoin or, or something else. Like it's nice to at least have Monero there. Again, I haven't bought either and use either. I haven't had a need to, but just like to answer your question, I think they should stick around or at least Monero should stick around as a backup. And maybe it does have privacy uh, improvements, but I haven't had to use either. In terms of anything else, no, like Litecoin, Ethereum, name the coin and I can't see any reason uh, for those. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I would probably be on the same page as you there. But let's go ahead and jump into guns and Bitcoin here. If, if I'm understanding correctly, not only is it a business, it's also a name of the, the podcast associated with that. Is that right? Correct. So we started it over just about a year ago. And it was more of an idea. And I think where I originally came up with it was back in the summer of 2017, when we were trying to activate Segwit. And, you know, they call it the civil war or something dumb, but, but that's when I really thought of it as a war with the UASF hats. And I think a couple of people were taking pictures of their hardware wallets and their guns, or maybe I did it first. I can't remember now, but either way, I created this, um, Twitter moments of people in their, in their hardware wallets and their guns. And it just spoke to me that idea of like the digital and the physical, I mean, your hardware wallet protecting your Bitcoin and your guns protecting your hardware wallet. So just kind of from that point of view is, is where I eventually ended up with guns and Bitcoin, just kind of the concept. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do with it, but I just knew there was something there. So we started about a year ago and we started it off with our, our main product, which is our Scorpion case. And then we have a couple hats and, and some really cool stickers. And then we started the podcast to spread the propaganda and just add another component to it because education and propaganda is important for this. And then we're going to be launching uh, a very exciting service very soon. I can't give an exact date, but it's it's really going to truly make us guns in Bitcoin. Uh, are you going to do some kind of actual gun product or a 3D printed gun product or something? I, I can't really say, but it, it will be uh, a service for the physical world. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. How about a quick little uh, jump into linking guns and Bitcoin, kind of dig deeper and you know bridge those together for me? Sure. When this got started, a lot of people asked me, like, how do you put these together? Because they don't seem to make any sense, especially if you're not American, <laughs> I guess. I, I think more Americans understood it, but, but people didn't get it because obviously Bitcoin is digital, it's software, guns is physical and just everything is different about it. You know, physical, digital, um, culturally, it's very different. But for me, they share so much in common because both guns and Bitcoin are meant to give you an asymmetric advantage for defense. So with Bitcoin, you have that asymmetric uh, defense against confiscation, inflation. And with guns, you have this asymmetric defense against the state or people who are also armed or better armed than you. So to me, they're, they're one, you can't have one without the other. And they have the same philosophy. Okay. I guess a, a question that kind of jumps into my head is from your perspective, is there any good arguments against guns at this point? You know, could you bring any up on, on your end being a kind of very pro-gun person? Yeah, there's, you know, arguments that I understand why people make them. And they're not dumb, dumb arguments per se. I just think they're not compelling enough to take away the human right of owning guns. So I think probably the first argument against owning guns is you just don't need them. Because for me, the main argument for guns is protection against the state, right? Like what we're seeing in Hong Kong. So most people don't think that's ever going to happen in their country. So why do you need these weapons of war is what they call them. Um, we have the police, we have the military, they, they protect us. Um, we live in safe Western countries. This is never going to happen. And if it does happen, your little AR-15 uh, won't do anything. But as history has shown us, as the news shows us in Hong Kong, 
that is simply not true. And even if it is unlikely, if it does happen, it's disastrous. You know, it's like it's unlikely to get eaten by a shark, but if you do, it's disastrous. It's death. It's not injury. It's usually death. So their argument is you just don't need guns for that purpose. The second one is it just is more dangerous, right? Like obviously the more people who have guns, the more people who can commit crimes with those guns. And I understand that, but freedom is dangerous, right? Freedom of speech is dangerous because people can publish slanderous things. They can publish uh, very awful photos of terrible acts, uh, publish videos of terrible things. But society, we've decided that those risks and those dangers and sometimes damage, real damage, is worth the freedom of speech. So yes, guns can lead to more violence, but to me, it's, it's worth a trade-off. And I see the right to bear arms as actually a human right, not just like a privilege, but a human right to defend yourself. And then the, the third one, which to me is most personal is, you know, you don't want to own a gun or the mentally ill should not own guns. And there are a lot of suicides committed with guns. So it makes sense that uh, people who are mentally ill should not be, should not own guns. And I agree with that, but not enforced by the state. Uh, my dad killed himself with his gun. So it's, it's, uh, it's an argument that I know very well, but, but again, it goes back to you can't take away everyone's rights based on these terrible things, as terrible as they may be. And these problems that are caused, you know, these, these violent crimes, suicide, I think we need to really fix those at the true cause. And the number one predictor of violence is actually a, a lack of a father in the home. And then, of course, uh, poor treatment for mental illnesses. So that's my focus when it comes to preventing violence and what I talk about the most and what I've done in the past with my uh, professional career, especially before I was in real estate. So sorry if that was a long answer and droned on, but those are, I think, the three main arguments against the right to bear arms. No, I uh, definitely like that very thorough answer there. I'm going to respond to the last one because I feel like it's pertinent to myself here. We've, you know, very briefly talked about this in the past, I think. So for the listeners that aren't really aware, you know, I definitely suffer from mental illness issues myself. And I, you know, part of this podcast is, you know, trying to overcome those, etc. I think, you know, I had some, you know, offhand comment uh, to you at Bitcoin 2019, where, you know, I said, you know, I'm probably a person that shouldn't have guns or something like that. And you kind of agreed with me. I, I didn't realize how relevant it was for you at that moment. I, I don't think you made the the fact about your uh, father um, public at that point. So it was it was very uh, interesting for me to kind of hear that on uh, on Peter's podcast and to kind of uh, link those things together. What do you think people should generally do about the mentally ill and you know guns in general? Like uh, you know you're saying the state shouldn't get involved. You know, what should people do in general to kind of combat that, you know, the, like the suicides or possibly uh, homicide type things? Yeah, great question. But first, I just uh, think it's great that you, you know, recognize that for you, it's not the right thing. And for me, owning a gun wasn't the right thing. Um, you know, after my dad's suicide, it was many years before I was comfortable owning a gun again, quite a while, actually, um, over a decade, just because, you know, the see, even seeing a gun just triggered some, some really bad um, thoughts. And so for me, I had to also step back from owning a gun. So it's, it's good that you, you know yourself and, and other people should, should um, be aware of that. And that's, I've told other people like, hey, if, you know, especially like um, people have come back from wars who own a lot of guns, it's like, you know, just kind of be aware of what you're going through. And if, if it's any question in your mind, just, you know, let someone hold your guns for a while. So to, to go back to your, um, to your question about mental illness, Unfortunately, I don't see a silver bullet. I think this is a, a, you know, a problem of the human condition. And the best, um, you know, the best solution is not an easy one, which is strengthening the family. It's just trying to have stable families, which stems from stable people, you know, a father and a mother who stays together, who, who you know, hopefully have the same values, who are committed, who aren't put under such tremendous stress, financial stress or other stress where they just break apart. So it's really just working at the base level of humanity and society, which is at the family level, which really means the individual level. So 
it's and maybe that's why people don't want that as a solution because it's it's not simple it's not political and it requires you know deep work so i think that's where we should start is let's just go back to the basics and the second thing is you know mental health in the us we have terrible terrible mental health care um, you and I have talked about that, you know, the cost of seeing a psychiatrist, like you want to get help, but, oh, I don't have insurance. Well, you know, what do you do then? Um, so it's, it's very difficult. And that's another difficult solution. How do we suddenly improve mental health care in the United States? It's, it's very hard. And so I think the only thing we can do there is kind of watch out for each other, raise awareness, like kind of be sensitive to when you see people kind of going down that path and just you know, just trying to, trying to be aware and just know what you can do to help people. And if you're in that state, um, which I think probably quite a few people in Bitcoin have been, but it's kind of hard to share, then just try to get some awareness and say, Hey, life is worth living. And just, you have to take care of yourself to, to not, you know, do something terrible. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I, I think the, the next part I'm curious about here is the premise is I'm a Bitcoiner and I need to defend myself against potential uh, threats, you know, both from potentially the state at some point or p possibly other adversaries that might want to steal my Bitcoin, let's say. You know, I've taken the the stance of I'm probably not, you know, good to have a gun in, in that sense. How else would people like me, you know, defend their Bitcoin or defend their other assets in general? Yeah, that's a great question. So like anything, there's trade-offs, right? I mean, you have to think about... Even Bitcoin, there's a trade-off. Like, should I own Bitcoin? Like, I have to pay debt off first, so I need, or I need an emergency fund. So Bitcoin is not for everyone based on circumstances. Guns are not for everyone based on circumstances. So to answer your question, what should you do? You know, you do do everything else. You put your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet. You password protect it. Maybe you hide it. Maybe you keep it in a safety deposit box. Um, you have multiple backups of your seed phrase things like that. Um, you know, a big thing with self-defense is situational awareness, just knowing where you are, like you're walking around the city. Are you paying attention to what's going on? Do you go down a dark street at 2 a.m.? Very basic things is some, anyone following you, um, locks on your doors, having a pet if you can, a, a dog that barks, even a tiny dog. So it's kind of like everything but a gun, um, you know, taser, pepper spray for stuff like that. But in terms of like protecting your Bitcoin, it's it's more likely to be something in the home. So just your basic home security, alarm, lights, awareness, things like that. And that gets you pretty far. Again, with the gun thing, it's it's like Bitcoin in the sense that it can be insurance. Um, hopefully no one ever has to use their gun. But if they do, they have it. Same with Bitcoin in a way. So it, again, you having to use a gun is, I think, very unlikely uh, in the West. But it's, it's just kind of insurance. But you don't always need insurance. Okay. I think I would agree with all that. Is there a lot of value in just shooting guns at a range or just kind of having fun? Oh, yeah. Shooting guns is, is fun. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss who didn't grow up with guns is they think shooting a gun is like diffusing a bomb. It's, it's not a gun. It's just plastic and metal. And you have to do all sorts of things to get it to work. You have to load it. Um, you know, you got to pull the trigger, all sorts of things. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And I found that the best way to convert people kind of away from some of their views on guns is to take them shooting. Then they realize it's just an inanimate object. Um, it requires human action. And so it's a lot of fun. It's fun to, you know, blow up watermelons and soda cans and shoot clay pigeons. It's just you know, for me, it's normal. It's like Europeans don't understand it, but they grew up playing soccer. I grew up shooting. So yeah, it's a great pastime. You get outside, hang out with your friends. Um, there's utility and just shooting at the range because you get comfortable with your weapon. You learn how to not blink and how to breathe and get that muscle memory. So I try to go as much as I can, but uh, been been really busy this last year. Okay, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the podcast that's also called uh, Guns and Bitcoin. Do you want to give a quick little summary on the whole idea behind that? Yeah, the idea is we say giving you the tools and stories to thrive and survive the cyberpunk dystopia. And what we mean by that is to obviously protect yourself, your Bitcoin, uh, protect your physical well-being. The big picture is we're under a police state and that we face censorship from the state and from private enterprise. And we face, um, you know, physical danger as well. And this is a new 
world that we live in and the types of protection that we need. So the world that maybe our parents grew up in is a lot different. They didn't have digital surveillance. They didn't have all these controls on their money. And, and they actually probably had worse gun control. So it's this new weird world that requires new types of protections and tools. And the second part is we're really focused on like practical things. We don't get too theoretical in these podcasts. We really are based in reality and what people can do today as, as well as history. And I think our, our episodes so far uh, show that. Yeah, I've only listened to a handful of episodes, but all of them have been very thoughtful. Not to say that other Bitcoin or similar podcasts aren't thoughtful, but I definitely feel like you spend a lot of time arguing against yourself and making sure you're being intellectually honest. And I, I really like that. For example, on the most recent episode, I believe, is the one dealing with poor people and Bitcoin. I, I feel like you did a really good job exploring the premise from both sides. Do you want to kind of briefly go into the uh, the idea behind that episode? Yeah. Well, well, thanks for the compliments and for listening. We're still very early with our episodes and still trying to figure it all out. So so thanks for that. Yeah, the, this latest episode uh, got started with... Um, what got started with the tweet that I saw and someone said that Bitcoin solves inequality and he, he wasn't joking. Like it, it's these Bitcoin solves or this Bitcoin fixes this meme is really funny, but people are taking it too seriously. So I saw that and I, I thought about it. I'm like, no, it doesn't. And I just kind of randomly tweeted a thought that like poor people can't afford to buy Bitcoin because they don't have the money. And if they can acquire some Bitcoin buying it or earning it, they have to turn around and sell it to you know, meet their immediate needs, pay rent, buy food, um, you know, go to the dentist, whatever it might be. And I thought it was not, I didn't think it was controversial, but uh, it ended up being very controversial based on the engagement. It was, of all of my tweets, it got the most replies, like, by far. So based on what a lot of people said in the, in the response, I thought, wow, I'm surprised we need to talk about this. I, I did the podcast. So to, to get back to your, I think, question, the basic idea is that there's a you know pyramid of needs. The first need is to have shelter, food, water. Once you go above that, you need some stability, right? You need to be able to take care of your needs day to day, your health, et cetera. And these go on and up, having you know stable relationships. So where does Bitcoin fall into that you know, hierarchy of needs? My view is it comes quite a bit after the basic necessities. And because poor people, especially the truly poor, are still down at, at the bottom level of their basic necessities, like Bitcoin is not a priority. And, and to be practical with that, again, they, they don't have the money to buy it. If they do have the money to buy it, it shouldn't be a priority because they have a lot better other things they should do with it, which I can go into detail. And then earning Bitcoin doesn't really help most people because, again, they have to convert it to buy what they need. And, and then, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, technical overhead to run Bitcoin. So that's kind of uh, the general summary. And, and people argue that it's, it's really about poor people don't save enough. They, um, poverty is a mindset. They need to cut back on their expenses. They need to change their time preference. And yeah, it's true. People need to work hard, save their money, be more disciplined. Um, I, I think that goes without saying. But I also saw a lot of people simply don't understand what it means to be poor. And we're pretty callous. And also, not only that, but have an unrealistic view of Bitcoin. So a lot of people say, well, Bitcoin is some money that, sol that solves poverty. Well, maybe one day in 20, 30 years, if there's hyper-Bitcoinization, which is a big if, that would help. But not today. Not when volatility it can drop. Bitcoin can drop 80% in price. So kind of a long answer, but that's kind of a summary. I definitely like that answer. Do you think that there's anything that Bitcoin can do today to help poor people? Or is it still a long ways before that actually happens? Yes, I do. I think there's two ways that Bitcoin can help poor people right now. Uh, the first is being able to receive Bitcoin um, or send Bitcoin in an area where there's severe banking restrictions, you know, of course, you know, like Venezuela's example, everyone likes likes to point to. So if you can't uh, send someone Bitcoin through the banking system, Western Union or other means, 
often Bitcoin can be sent to them. Now there's complications with that, which I go into the podcast um, talking about Argentina and talking about uh, Palestine as well. So it's, it's not a straightforward answer. The, the second way that Bitcoin can help poor people right now is also through the um, Bitcoins, Bitcoin being hard to seize and seizure. So if you are, um, if you have bill collectors coming after you and they want to garnish your wages, they want to empty your bank account, they want to have you sell certain assets, you can put that money into Bitcoin and it's, it's a lot harder for them to get at that. Of course, you know, there's court orders and all sorts of stuff, but usually they, they can kind of give up after a while. So if you're really poor, you can protect um, some money by putting into Bitcoin or if you're just in a place where the government is, is corrupt or is going to empty your bank account, like actually happened in Greece several years ago, then that's a good way to protect your money. Absolutely. I'm kind of moving on slightly here. Is there any episode of the podcast that you would consider your favorite at the moment? Yeah, there. you, you understand this. Like each episode is different and they're like your children. You, you're not supposed to have a favorite. Um, yeah, it's tough. I really like this one we did on Bitcoin and the poor, even though it, uh, it was, I think it was our least popular episode or maybe next to last. So it's, it's, I guess the ugly, ugly child of the episodes, but I love it. That was my favorite one because I thought we really dove into some issues that really challenged people. And then after that, it's, it's hard to pick one. I mean, each one's been different. Got it. Okay. What future do you see for the podcast? Like, where do you think you're going to end up uh, taking it? Well, we're, we're still going to be talking a lot about 3d printed guns. We've had at least we have had two people who are there just to talk about 3D printed guns. We had someone who is talking about homemade ammo and, and also uh, armor piercing ammo, which will be, be legal. Uh, we've got two more episodes coming up with uh, 3D gun printing guys who are you know kind of the top guys who have made a lot of designs and tested a lot. And so we got that. And then we've got, of course, Bitcoin stuff. Uh, coming up as well. I interviewed Stefan Lavera, so talking about the issue of poor people. So it'll be, again, the, the themes of, of guns and Bitcoin, but also we, we're going to talk about community, which is, um, I think, an overused phrase, but really go into you know, the idea of having a closed loop circular Bitcoin economy, because I think that's what Bitcoin is really missing right now. Um, it's really out of focus. So things like that, um, you know, practical ways that we can have a parallel society. To me, that's more important than mass adoption. I don't think mass adoption of Bitcoin is really going to happen. And it's so far off, but I think we can have this closed loop economy of, of Bitcoin. And, and I want to talk quite a bit about that in the future. I definitely feel like that's a, a really good subject. Uh, after I had uh, John Carvalho on from BitRefill, I started to ask questions related to that in every episode, just because I felt like it was so pertinent. Just to kind of go into that really fast, the main reason that I got into Bitcoin initially was because of Silk Road. You know, I, I went on there to buy weed, and I think that was a small example of a circular economy developing organically. You know, well, what's your opinion on, you know, using Bitcoin and, you know, related technologies to route around the laws like the uh, the drug war we have in the United States? Absolutely. I mean, this this concept of a closed parallel economy has been the goal of cypherpunks for decades. Um, of course, as was encrypted communication, but the hardest one was the money component. And how do you have a parallel society if you're using the financial system of the state? So absolutely, Bitcoin is the foundation of, of having a circular economy that's out of reach of the state. So it, it's very, very important to do that. And so even if you're not like a major believer in that, or you don't think you see the need for it, I think almost all Bitcoiners see the weakness of relying on exchanges, of going on and off fiat for many reasons, which we you know don't need to obviously discuss because they're so obvious. But so even if you don't think we need a fully closed loop economy, I think buying and selling and paying in Bitcoin helps get people off those on-ramps, which are the biggest weakness in Bitcoin from privacy reason, um, just from a, a security reason of using a trusted third party. So I think it's very compelling for multiple reasons to try to get people to buy and spend and pay in Bitcoin 
a lot more than they are now. How do you think that we can do that? I feel like that's one of the bigger challenges overall here. Yeah, very difficult. Some of it is just trying to get people away from this HODL monomania. I mean, it just, you know, HODL is a great investment strategy, but it's, it's not the best sort of revolution strategy. And, you know, we have to hold Bitcoin. So it goes up in value and brings more people on and it, and it increases our wealth so that we can live better and do different things. But to answer your question, I think people just have to start paying with Bitcoin and just realize they're supporting a bigger picture, a bigger goal. So let's say you're going to go to a Bitcoin conference, you know, pay in Bitcoin, not a credit card. And it's, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. Sometimes it makes more sense financial, at least to, to not pay in Bitcoin. But I think just trying to, you know, get that ethos out and build up and remind people the importance of creating the circular economy. So that's number one. Number two is I think doing, you know, kind of what we're doing, which is start a business or do something where you can start accepting Bitcoin. You know, that's, I think the best way to acquire Bitcoin is by earning it and then starting that economy. Um, and I, I've actually been very impressed by the people who have, you know, bought our case, sit, our people have bought our case, our hats, our stickers, um, and some other things, people who have signed up for our paid newsletter and a lot, a lot have been paying in Bitcoin, like a lot more than I expected. In my previous experience, um, accepting Bitcoin for different things I've done, it was like 10% at most of people would, would uh, use Bitcoin. But for guns and Bitcoin, it's, I won't say exact percentage, but it's very, very high. Got it. I feel like this is a good segue to move into your uh, lightning experience here. I can't remember how long ago it was, maybe two months ago. I think you turned on your the uh, the lightning function on your BTC Pay server. And, you know, you, you said something on Twitter and that made me want to just be like the first asshole to go on there and pay with lightning just because I'm, you know, so inside lightning. I went into that and I my uh, transactions kept failing and I realized that you didn't have any inbound liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people started coming to your aid and opening up channels to, you know, long story short, do you want to give a brief uh, summary of your experiences with Lightning? Sure. So I had been, yeah. So to, to step back, we were using BTC Pay Server for guns and Bitcoin, still use Bitcoin, still use BTC Pay Server to this day. I love it. And I had people that said, hey, Ragnar, I want to use Lightning Network. Why don't you set it up? I think you commented too, like, you know, asking about Lightning Network. So there was many people kind of encouraged me, encouraging me to do it. I had one guy say, I want to buy your Scorpion case and a hat, but I won't do it unless I could use Lightning. So that's why when I finally set it up, I said, okay, now it makes business sense to actually do this because this is a business and we want to sell our products, right? And make money. So if customers want it, Okay, I'll do it. And that's really the reason why I started to uh, set up Lightning Network Payments. So I, I didn't know how to do it. So I got a lot of help from the BTC Pay server, uh, men and women like Rockstar Dev. He, he helped me set it up initially. Very patient. Um, I made some really dumb mistakes setting it up. Like I could barely use the command line. And so he really walked me through it. And I thought I was done. So he helped me set it up on BTC Pay Server and I thought I was done. And then I think that's where your tweet came in or, or direct message. I can't remember which one. And I didn't know I had to do more. Like I didn't know I need to set up this capacity or, or anything like that. So after you tweeted that, then I had to go back to the drawing board and look what I needed to do. And then I had more issues relating around it. So long story short, it was probably at least 12 hours to, to fix issues and it was it was a lot on my end um but that just shows i'm i consider myself kind of average bitcoiner you know i could run a node i i use you know um pgp and private keys and stuff like that but that's about it so if someone of my you know average iq makes dumb mistakes uh, probably other people are so it was just a lot of frustration just getting it to work and so I'll stop there, but there's other things that I, I haven't really liked about Lightning Network. Okay, and we'll definitely launch into those, I think. But I guess my first thought is, do you feel like it's very 
naive of a lot of Lightning fans on Twitter that whenever they see, you know, like, for example, I think today was Pornhub that stopped with PayPal or whatever. Do you think it's very naive of a lot of us just to jump in and be like, oh, man, here's Bitcoin, here's Lightning, it'll fix it all tomorrow. Here you go. Absolutely. I think that's very naive. I think uh, before Pomp blocked me, he said something about MasterCard and, you know, there was some issue with MasterCard and Visa. And then he said, oh, just, you know, set up Lightning Network. I'm like, Lightning Network replacing MasterCard. Like, I mean, that isn't like a hyperbole to just be encouraging. That's like insanity. So yes, to answer your question, I think it's naive. And I think people are naive for one of two reasons. Either they've never used it or set it up. Or maybe they're so smart and good at software that for them, they really haven't had issues. Otherwise, I don't understand why people think it's a solution for everything and you can just, you know, fire it up like you could just easily fire a BTC pay server. You kind of mentioned that you had more opinions about Lightning. Yeah. What, what, what are those opinions? Yeah, well, I think maybe part of my um, just reluctance to really dive into it was that, you know, before I've never needed it. Like for years, I've paid on chain without any problems. Now, when the when the transaction fees shot up in you know 2016, 2017, that was a little different, but um, that was sort of an anomaly. But otherwise, on chain payments have worked great for me. Very comfortable with it. I understand better like where I'm having good privacy and where I'm not. So I I just didn't see a need at all for this layer two yet other than to people said they would use it to buy you know our gear so first of all i didn't see a need for it second of all i just it didn't interest me so i didn't dive into it like you know yourself and other people who are very interested in it so you know they're motivated hours and hours of studying it learning about it fixing issues so so those two things but to answer your question the things i don't like about it besides it being difficult for me to set up and run Something I don't like is having to have these channels open. So I have Bitcoin that aren't in cold storage, but that aren't available to spend. And they're just sitting there. And to me, that's really foreign to Bitcoin. I'm like bipolar. Like I either want my Bitcoin in very cold storage, deep, buried in the ground, or I want to be able to buy stuff with it easily. And with Lightning Network, having to keep those funds in limbo, it's it's just like a... I don't know. I I just don't like having to do that. That makes a lot of sense. I think like very often I, for example, I have a uh, Casa node and I'm actually going through some issues with them with the uh, Casa node right now where I'm probably going to have to try to recover from the the backup. That's really not fun, but not really something that you would have to think about if you had your funds in uh, cold storage. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's like, you know how to keep your Bitcoin in the hardware wallet or, or cold storage, or like even run a, a node, like I'm more familiar with setting that up, you know, behind Tor. When I set up Lightning Network, I didn't know if I set it up properly on Tor, or even if I did, I was just like a monkey pushing buttons, you know, like I was in the chat and, uh, you know, people like Pavlinex and, and some other people were like, okay, Ragnar, push this button type this in the terminal. You know, I was just like doing that and I had no idea what I was doing. So I think I set it up properly and I have Tor there, but I don't know. Whereas my my full node, the, the different ones I run, I'm, I'm pretty confident. I know I set it up right. So then you do something like Casa, you know, you just, it's one more thing to have to get right. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some kind of arguments against Lightning. Do you happen to have any in favor of Lightning by chance? Well, for me, since I'm always about focusing on more kind of privacy and censorship resistance, that's where it's more compelling. And I think Matt O'Dell uh, is the one who who brought this up to me that like change. So when you do a Lightning Network transaction, you don't have change. And that makes sense. Change is, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to deal with um, to protect your privacy because it's just sitting around. And so you want to like, merge those. So you have 10 cents here and 75 cents there. You want to merge all those. So you have $10, whatever it is, which is a a terrible idea. So I do like that, that you don't have change in those. And then, um, of course, I like the idea of privacy because you're not doing these transactions on chain every time. It's just final settlement. So, you know, supposedly that gives you more privacy, you know, for obvious reasons. So for me, it's more the privacy 
um, aspect. And then in terms of like guns and Bitcoin store, um, you know, people like it because it's more of an instant thing rather than having to wait for checkout. So I understand that. To me, it's not quite as compelling because, I don't know, it's never been an issue to like wait for one confirmation. Maybe customers feel otherwise, but maybe just because I'm so conditioned when I buy stuff, waiting one or two confirmations, I'm used to it. Maybe if I got into Bitcoin later, I'd, I'd be shocked. Like, what, I got to wait 10, 20, 30 minutes, you know, to buy this hat? So, I, you know, maybe it's just being an old man that... Uh, <laughs> I don't care as much. Do you think that there's any compelling use case or any use case in general for things like micropayments? Yeah. And that's something that I, I do think is a good argument for the Lightning Network, because obviously on chain, you can't really do that. And what I'm interested in for that is, um, you know, publishing things, you know, like uh, we have a newsletter, but it's kind of traditional newsletter. And eventually I'm going to write a book. And I would love for people just to be able to pay for what they read. Like maybe they don't want to buy the whole book for $10, whatever it's going to be. But maybe they just, they just want to read one chapter and the chapter has three pages. I would love for people to just pay, you know, 10 cents or whatever it will be. And BTC pay server already has this, this function of, of doing something like that. So I am keeping an eye on that right now. I don't need it but I do want to use it in the future. And it is something that on-chain payments can't do. So I'm glad you brought that up. That is another good uh, use case for Lightning. And I hope it becomes easy because that is something I do want to implement uh, at Guns and Bitcoin. Along those same lines, would you say that you do see yourself using Lightning more in the future? Yeah, I do want to use Lightning Network more in the future for things we're going to do. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, a book I'm going to write and some other things we're going to have that people can read. Also, you know, I, I talk a lot with uh, 3D gun printing guys. I, I'm not an expert in that at all, but I, I do, you know, try to give them a voice and a forum and stuff. And they really need donations. You know, most of these guys, it's not obviously their full-time job. You can't sell these things, but they're always looking to somehow accept donations or figure out some way. And it would, and I try to help them with this um, a little bit, just trying to set up, um, you know, accepting Bitcoin as donations and I've helped a couple, but the bottom line is that they have these files and people can just donate, like, here's his free files. I spent a lot of time on it and I can't sell it, but if you want to like donate a dollar 50 cents, um, why not? And that would help them out a lot. So I would, I would love to see that, uh, be easy to use and, and not complicated. Okay. Have you used lightning at all? Just in practical purpose, you know, just uh, fire up a lightning wallet and just give it a try personally. I do have the zap wallet and I do have funds. Uh, I do have funds in the wallet. Obviously I think you need to, but I myself haven't bought anything with, with lightning just because I'm afraid to lose my funds. And it's probably very simple. You know, you, you scan the QR code, just like a traditional payment. So I'm sure it's easy, but I just, I just, I'm really miserly and I don't like to lose any Bitcoin, even if it's, you know, $2 worth. So I haven't just because I don't want to risk it and I could just do it to the traditional way. But I think when I have some more free time, get comfortable, practice with it, then then I will. And maybe that's when I'll become a believer when I just can do these easy transactions instantly. I don't lose funds. I'm not, you know, fuddling around with it and I don't struggle. So maybe that's, you know, my own fault for not giving it a try. Maybe we'll end up seeing you at the Lightning Conference 2020 at, at that point. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I could do a successful transaction and I have a lot of fun with it, no problem, then maybe I'll, I'll be there and uh, at the front row and, and be wearing a shirt and saying it's the future and it could replace MasterCard. There you go. There you go. A uh, question I, I do like to ask in every podcast, just because it's my own kind of internal thesis thing. Do you think it's a good idea possibly to onboard newbies uh, directly onto the Lightning Network and kind of bypassing the base chain of Bitcoin? Or do you think an education in the base chain is integral to being onboarded at all? That's an interesting question because people are comfortable with making payments and especially if they're you know quick instant payments or as maybe if you try to explain to them confirmation times you, you might lose them so i could see people who have never just used bitcoin that might make more sense to them especially it's like instant gratification because you, they don't have to wait so i i can see that and again it goes back to my point that having used just on-chain transactions for so long it, 
it's, you know, that's not novel or, or exciting to me, but I, I can definitely see uh, the right people getting excited about that who maybe are newer to Bitcoin and it's, it's less of a, you know, less of a setup to do and less explaining to do. I'm going to go a little bit more broad here. What do you see in the future of Bitcoin? Do you see it being far more corporate or do you see it kind of going far more cypherpunk as it were? That's a great question. I hope it goes back to being more cypherpunk and goes back to focusing a little more on accomplishing cypherpunk goals of having a parallel society um, with commerce that is off the radar of the state. But whether that happens, I don't know. I think Bitcoin is in an interesting place right now because it does have a history of financial success, which has brought in a lot of people. I guess if I were to be most to make a bet, I would say it's going to go in several directions where everyone can turn Bitcoin into what they want it to be. So the people who just see it as a long-term investment can just do that. Uh, people who want to use it for cypherpunk goals can do that. So I think as long as it just keeps progressing, people can choose what they want. But in terms of the overall tone of Bitcoin right now, and, and it's kind of a more dominant conversation, I think there's a monomania for hodling and, and kind of the bigger cypherpunk picture has gotten lost a little bit. So hopefully that will come more into focus. Big picture for Bitcoin. I think it's, it, I, I, I'm optimistic. I don't think we'll ever have mass adoption. I'm skeptical of hyper Bitcoinization. And, uh, but I, I'd love to be wrong. Me too, I think. If you had the ability to wave a magic wand and change something to make things more cypherpunk, what would that be? Well, just a very simple thing for me is coin join. Like Bitcoin is 10 years old and like, how do you do a good coin join? How do you protect your privacy? It's, it's not easy. You know, this, you have Samurai and you have Wasabi and, and I'm still trying to make heads and tails. I've, I've used both. But I mean, geez, how is it that we've spent all this money on all these things and have all these conferences and all these thought pieces and coin join is still hard. So if I had a magic wand, I would make it, you know, one click that you can properly, you know, control your UTXOs and, and, and do all that. I think that's to me, like if you were to say, what's the biggest weakness in Bitcoin right now? It would be that. Okay. Do you have any general interest in these kind of uh, alternative transmission technologies? Like we have the Blockstream satellite, we have the Gotenna that you can send out transactions over their little mesh network thing. Do you have any kind of general interest in that? I love those. I love, um, yeah, the satellites and the mesh networks. I haven't gotten too deep into that. But I did do, I did interview one person for a podcast for that. I'm not sure it's going to make it. We might have to re-record, add some audio issues. But yeah, I think that's very cypherpunk, Blockstream satellite and, and uh, mesh networks. Hopefully that will spread a little more and I probably need to spend some time on it to make that happen. But having that uh, resilience is, is so key. So I'm glad that's happening and that, that's a bright spot. Uh, in Bitcoin. I would agree. I feel like I I try to stay abreast of most crypto things in general, and I'm not aware of any alternative altcoin that has any of those adversarial cypherpunk things kind of going for it. Do you think that there's anything coming in the future that you're really excited about kind of overall uh, technology-wise? Well, I, I'm not the, you know, the, the most technical person in Bitcoin, but from what I've read about Taproot, that seems to have a lot of potential and things that can change things. Um, so my mediocre understanding of that is it's something that can be done. It's, it's not science fiction and it seems like there's some smart people working on it. So I think if it does what I understand that it can do, I think that'd be very exciting. I, I think I'm also excited to see more and more, um, options for nodes both hardware nodes and Raspberry Pis and things like that, because obviously a node is, is a major, major part. So probably those two things. You know, I definitely have the idea myself that if a cryptocurrency is going to win, it's Bitcoin. Do you think that's wrong or do you think there's any holes in that uh, thought process? I think Bitcoin is most likely to win for, I think, all the reasons you and I would agree on. Um, so yes, Bitcoin is the clear winner. I can't see anything coming 
close at all uh, for, for so many reasons. That being said, I also try to balance that with some paranoia and some humility and say, well, we have to be prepared if it fails. And we also have to understand that the goals of Bitcoin, there's other tools that help to accomplish those goals. So let's not just say, put all of our chips on Bitcoin. And if Bitcoin fails, the cypherpunk dream fails. I think that's short-sighted. So as much as I think Bitcoin will succeed, it's good to also kind of be working on everything else and maybe have one or two coins um, just kind of under your, you know, in your radar at least. Okay, perfect. Do you want to go ahead and let the listeners know how they can find you on the internet and on Twitter and all that? Sure. Thank you. So on Twitter, I'm at Ragnarly. So R-A-G-N-A-R-L-Y. And then Guns and Bitcoin is just gunsandbitcoin.com. And I'm also on Keybase. So I've been really using Keybase a lot and I like it. So um, people aren't on Keybase, please find me on there. And there's a Bitcoin group that Matt Odell runs. So I recommend people getting on that. All right. Perfect. I really appreciate you joining me on the Lightning Junkies podcast, Ragnar. Thank you, Chaz. Boom. That was the 12th episode of the Lightning Junkies podcast. I really like that one. It really helped me to have some different thoughts about various things, some preconceived notions. Hopefully the show did the same thing for you. If you did happen to take away something from this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving a review for this podcast on whatever podcast aggregator that you might use. As well, if you want to chip in Bitcoin on chain or over the Lightning Network, you can do so at my crowdfunding campaign, crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. There's also links to tip me in the show notes. In the future, I definitely want to have more episodes where I'm very skeptical of lightning and try to have that be center stage. Bertrand Russell once said, In all affairs, it's a healthy thing now and again to hang a question mark on things you've long taken for granted. I think there's many advantages in being intellectually honest and not succumbing to the hype of cool technologies that we really like, even something like the Lightning Network. I would much rather live in the real world and try to address issues that actually exist than try to fool myself and just go into la-la land. For now, that's going to be the end of the episode. I'll see you on the Lightning Network. <laughs>